why I had Keith read today. <clears throat> we were going to call out the big guns for that passage. We weren't messing around. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. You've given it to us. Every page, every word, every line, inspired by your Holy Spirit, told men who were carried along by your Spirit to write these things down for our good. So now as we read your word, as we've had it read to us, as we've heard it come. Okay, Seven Mile Road, uh, though it feels like spring, we are three days from Christmas, so Merry Christmas to you all. I hope that we get to celebrate again with many of you on Christmas Eve. So as we approach Christmas, here's what I want to say. Uh, we are today wrapping up this series that we called Shadows. We began it some four months ago, and at the beginning of the series, I opened the series by uh, giving you an illustration that I stole from a pastor named John Piper. And if you remember, the, the illustration was this. Uh, imagine that a little girl was going shopping with her mom, right? And she was in a large supermarket and wandering through the aisles. And imagine that she's carried along and, and taken by some of the stuff that's on the aisles. And in that, she loses track of mom. And, and if you've ever been there, you know the panic that sets in a little child's heart when you can't find mom. And so she looks here and there and everywhere. And just as she's about to run down the aisles and scream and just burst out in tears, she sees a shadow at the end of the aisle about to turn the corner. And just seeing the shadow, she knows it's mom. And if you could freeze time for a second, right? If you, could, if you could freeze time for a second and get into her heart, you'd imagine that all of a sudden you could see the fear giving way to hope and the dread giving way to joy and the, and the sorrow giving way to relief. You could see her heart beginning to turn because she sees the shadow of what looks like mom. And then if you could unfreeze time, and then see, as glorious as that moment was, the very next moment where mom actually turns the corner. And she sees the one to whom the shadow had been pointing. And in that moment, the joy and relief and gladness and, and happiness that she feels is magnified tenfold from what she felt just a moment earlier. And that's because the shadow is great, but mom is better. And in some ways, we've said right from the start, that's what this whole series has felt like. That with each character we've walked through in the Old Testament, as we've told all of their stories, we've seen the shadow of someone larger and better looming through their stories. As if through each of their stories, there was someone just about to step around the corner and we were to see David's great, but this one's better. And Adam's great, and this one's better. And Esther's great, but Jesus is better. And so now, as we come now to three days before Christmas, it's time for us to celebrate the arrival of the one to whom all the shadows were pointing, right? As we come now, we're ready to see that all these people were getting us ready for the one who was going to step around the corner. And this December 25th, and in this Sunday, we get to celebrate that he actually came. He turned the corner and all the Old Testament, Old Covenant saints were great, but Jesus is better. And so, here's how it happens in the scriptures. When you get to the last page of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, some 400 years of silence, and then the New Testament kicks off. And with it comes the story of the arrival of the one, the one to whom all the shadows had been pointing. He's about to turn around the corner, and Matthew 
the first gospel writer, is going to begin to tell you the story of his arrival beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1. Except the way that he begins to tell you the Christmas story is completely not what you'd expect, right? In fact, if you've read the Bible before, Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17, the passage that Keith, with great vigor, read for us, is the passage you know to skip right over, right? Because when you're reading Matthew 1, you know the Christmas story starts at verse 18 because finally you can pronounce something. Something makes sense. So, so the question is, if the whole Old Testament had been pointing to this one, why does Matthew start with this clunky list of some 40-odd names, a genealogy, a family tree? Why does he start that way, and what on earth are we supposed to learn from it? What is that list supposed to teach us about Christmas? And in some ways, here's what I want to say. Matthew is doing right off of the, of the get-go, right from the first verse, what we've been doing for the last four months. And that is that the way that Matthew wants to get you ready for Christmas is by running you through the names and stories of a bunch of guys from the Old Covenant that led to the coming of Christ. That Matthew doesn't just want to drop you into the manger or tell you there was no room for him in the inn or tell you about the angels and the shepherds and the cattle lowing and the songs. What Matthew wants to do is do what we've been doing, which is walk you through how he arrived. And for Matthew, he essentially gives you Jesus' family tree because for Matthew, he figures if you can understand where Jesus came from and who Jesus came from, then you can understand why Jesus came. Let me say that again. Matthew starts this way because if you can understand where Jesus came from and who Jesus came from, then you get a big glimpse into why Jesus came. Why was Jesus born? Why do we have Christmas? And oddly enough, among all the passages in the scriptures, this list of 40 names, this genealogy, this messy family tree is going to give us the answer to that. Now, as I've been mentioning, there's 40 names, so I'm not going to walk you through all of their stories, but here's what I would have you notice. If you just survey Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17, you'll notice that Matthew's list does something that you wouldn't expect. Namely, that Matthew's list includes a bunch of people that we would have left out. Okay? Matthew's list includes a bunch of names and a bunch of people that we would have left out. And here's what I, why I'm saying that. If you read the verses, verses 1 through 17, you'll see that at the end, he's got this neat breakup. 14 generations from here to here. 14 generations from here to here. And 14 generations from here to here. Now, the reason he does that is because he's got this point, And so he makes it nice and neat. But we know it wasn't exactly 14 generations. He had taken the liberty to skip lots of people. He had mentioned some fathers and their grandsons without mentioning the son in the middle. So he had liberty to include whoever he wanted to on this list. He wasn't bound to some kind of long, exhaustive list. And that's what makes you especially wonder. When he had already taken the liberty to leave out some names, why does he include these? And in fact, why does he include some names that we especially would have left out? Right? Listen, though this text is from a long time ago, you know what this is like. Everyone has someone in the family 
that you're not particularly proud to admit is part of your family, right? And if at all possible, you hide the fact that you're related to that person in the family. If you don't have to mention them, you don't mention them, right? Everyone knows what that's like. Like, if, if you traced back your genealogy, and you, you found you had some German blood in you, and you found out that one of your great-great-uncles was a Nazi, that's not exactly the kind of trivia you're going to break out and bust out at parties, right? You're going to hide that as best as you can. You don't want anyone to know that. Now, on the other hand, if you go to Ancestry.com and find out you were somehow connected to Abraham Lincoln, man, that's the first thing at parties you're going to talk about. Because we all know, implicitly or not, we all know there's something about who we came from that tells you something about us. It, it, there, there's something about who we're connected to that speaks to us. And so it was with Jesus, that who he had come from speaks volumes about him. And even more so than our day, I want you to know a resume, a, a genealogy in Matthew's day functioned like a resume, right? When you, when you put a resume today, you're putting your best version forward. You're, you're telling them about the internship that you had, but you're leaving out the comp sci class you failed, right? You're not going to tell them all of it. You're putting your best foot forward. In that day, you didn't have resumes. You had genealogies. This is how you were going to tell what you were and who you came from and what you're worth. And so you were going to put your best foot forward. And yet Matthew seems intent on going out of his way to mention some names we would have never included. For example, what you'll notice is that Matthew does something no one else in his day would have done. He names women in this genealogy. If you've read the Bible before, you've heard lots of lists like these, right? These are the so-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so. And it's always dad begat this son, who begat this son, who begat this son. Well, Matthew goes out of his way to mention women. And so here's what I want to do. Rather than run you through 40 stories, I want to just give you the quick stories of the women in particular that he mentions and see that if in their stories we might see what the whole list is about. He mentions four women, four grandmothers to Jesus. Here's the first one. This is verses 1 to 3, and you'll meet the first of these grandmoms of Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar is the first grandmom in Jesus' line that you meet. Now, Tamar's story is in Genesis 38. And I'm going to give you a very abridged, succinct version because if I told you her story in all its full-blown detail, you would email me about how inappropriate I was, right? There is some details to her story that you should read on your own because if I said it from out the front, you would yell at me. It's a crazy story. Tamar's story is Genesis 38, and here's what happens. Abraham, whose name you've probably heard, has a son named Isaac. Isaac's got a son named Jacob. Jacob's got 12 sons. One of those sons is a son named Judah. And what Judah does is he arranges a marriage for his eldest boy named Ur to a young girl, probably Canaanite, named Tamar. In all likelihood, she's probably 15, 16 years old. So a young girl is married off to his son. Now, in Genesis 38, we're not told all the details, but what we do learn is that Ur is a punk. He is wicked. 
And if you're in the Old Testament and you're a punk and you're wicked, what's, what's God probably going to do to you? Right? He's going to kill you. This is the Old Testament. So Ur, we read, is killed. So now this young girl is a widow. And in that day, a widow was the most helpless person in society. If you've read the Bible, you've heard God often say, take care of widows and orphans. Because they were the most vulnerable people in society. If you didn't have a husband or a son, then you were left out in the open, defenseless to be abused or mistreated or taken advantage of. You could get no job. You could provide not for yourself. You were basically done. And so a law was made back then to provide and care for widows. And the law went that if your husband died, his brother could marry you and have children in the dead man's name so as to keep his line and to provide for you a widow. And so that's what happens. Ur dies, and so Judah does what he needs to do. He gives his second son, a man named Onan, to Tamar. Now, if you read the story, you find that Onan, like his older brother, is a punk. And Onan does not want to fulfill his responsibilities. He has no problem sleeping with Tamar, but he takes whatever measures he can to ensure that she will not get pregnant. And you can read through the details. And so he's a punk. And so what does God do to wicked punks in the Old Testament? He kills them. And so now, Onan's dead. And so now Judah has another son, and he sees Tamar and goes, I am not giving that woman another man. Right? I've sent him two sons of mine. They both ended up dead. What do you think is going to happen to the third one? And so he makes up this excuse and he deceives her and says, listen, when my youngest grows up and is of age, I'll make sure that he marries you. Just go and figure out life till then. And so now this girl has to figure out what to do with life. She hears word that this son has grown up and that Judah has no intention of doing the right thing. And so this is where the story gets even crazy. What she then decides to do is she overhears that Judah is coming to a certain town She goes and she dresses herself up. She puts a veil on as a prostitute. And she stands in the way of her father-in-law. And her father-in-law that night uh, buys her. But he doesn't have the money to buy her. And so he says, here, I'm going to leave you basically uh, what would be the equivalent of a wallet or a credit card today. He says, here's my staff. Here's my cord. Here's a signet. These things are pledges to you that when I get money, I'll send it to you. And that night... She sleeps with her father-in-law and she gets pregnant. Then word gets back to Judah sometime later. Your daughter-in-law Tamar has done the unthinkable. She's been immoral somehow, some way, with someone. She's pregnant. And Judah's first response is, we're going to burn her. Okay? So he's marching down, ready to burn Tamar. And Tamar says, listen, before you burn me, I've got evidence of who the baby's daddy is. Right? This is before Mari Povich. We don't need any of that because here, I, I, I can show you, I can prove you who the baby's daddy is. Whoever owns this staff, this cord, and this signet is the baby's daddy. And Judah shows up and Judah finally says, Tamar has been even more righteous than I am for I did not keep the word of the Lord. And so she bears for her father-in-law in this incestuous relationship two twin boys. Now, out of all the stories you could have left out, Matthew wants to go out of his way to remind you Tamar is one of Jesus' grandmoms. Now, why is that there? I'll tell you, we'll keep going. The next woman that you meet 
is in verse 5. And here's what it says in verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Now Rahab, if you've been in this series with us, is someone you've likely heard of before. Now Rahab is the second grandmom in Jesus' line that we meet. And what's Rahab's story? Rahab, we know, is a Canaanite. So hear that. She's not Jewish. She's not of God's people, of God's laws, of God's covenant. She is a Gentile, heathen, pagan, idol worshiper from Jericho. And, and that should not be a detail that just glosses over us. To be a Canaanite was a very wicked thing. I mean, the Canaanites were people that had worshipped idols, basically demons, and offered their children as sacrifices to these demons for a long time. It's not a small thing. I recently read this great article about how we, some months ago, found out that Syria, if you read this, Syria was using chemical warfare or chemical weapons on its own people. We were so aghast at that, that just in discovering it this year, we were ready to drop a bomb on Syria. I want you to hear that. Because when you hear God tell the Israelites, wipe out the Canaanites, we immediately go, unfair. We found out in one year that Syria was using chemical weapons on its own people, its children, and we were ready to bomb them. God had watched the Canaanites slaughter their sons and daughters for 400 years without dropping a bomb. 400 years of watching their wickedness and putting up with their evil. Rahab is a Canaanite from Jericho. And not only is she one of the bad guys from Canaan, her profession is that she is a prostitute. She owns a brothel in the city of Jericho. She is running a hotel where she is selling herself for money. So this Canaanite prostitute is who you meet in Joshua chapter 2. And the story goes that God's people were coming into Jericho. They were going to take the land. And so they sent two spies to go and search out the land. She comes across these spies and she hides them. She saves them. And in fact, she, she basically tells them, listen, I've heard about the God of Abraham. I've heard of this God across the way who parted the Red Sea and parted the Jordan River. And I really believe that is the true God. So when you come, would you please remember me and my family? And her act of faith is so heroic that even the New Testament would later reference Rahab and say, you want to know what faith looks like? Think of Rahab the prostitute. And Matthew goes out of his way to remind you that this Canaanite prostitute is one of Jesus' grandmoms. But that's not the only one you meet. Look at the end of verse 5. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Now, I won't take any time at this at all because we've spent time, a whole Sunday, devoted to talking through Ruth. You remember Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Naomi, who had traveled to Moab because there was no bread in Bethlehem, and who had lost her sons there. These sons who had married local Moabite girls, and one of those Moabite girls was Ruth, this widow, who then pledges to come back with Naomi and says famously, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. Where you live, I'll live. Where you die, I will die. And we're reminded that this Ruth gets grafted into the story as well. Ruth, the Moabite. Don't forget that detail too. The Moabite. I mean, if, if there's anything that could have been worse than a Canaanite, it was a Moabite. 
Right? Moabites were written in the law to not be allowed to worship with God's people. So if this was the Old Testament, we could all stand here. A Moabite could not come in. They were so other, so outside, so foreign, so not one of us. And if the Canaanites were bad, the Moabites were worse. They were descendants of Sodom. Even if you're not very familiar with the Bible, perhaps you've heard the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. These two cities so wicked, God literally lit them up. And that's where the Moabites come from. In fact, the story of the origin of Moab is even weirder. It's in Genesis in the story of these two daughters of Lot who trick their father and sleep with their father and impregnate him. And out of that incest is born Moab. And again, here are some things we would have left out. And Matthew goes out of his way to remind you, remember the Moabite widow, she too is one of Jesus' grandmoms. One more woman is mentioned. This is verse 6. And it says, And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So here's another grandma mentioned. Her name is not mentioned. If you know the story, you know who the wife of Uriah was. This is a woman named Bathsheba. And the reason he doesn't include her name is not some kind of slight against Bathsheba. This is a slam on David. Right? Matthew has no problem naming women. But he goes out of his way to remind you, Solomon was not just the little boy born to David and Bathsheba. Solomon is David's son who came by the wife of Uriah. So he goes out of his way to remind you that there's this story, this unsavory, unflattering story behind Solomon's birth. Right? He could have easily said, Solomon born to David and Bathsheba. No, no, no. He, he subtly makes sure that you remember Solomon, the son of David by the wife of Uriah. Right? What's, what's her story? David, this great king, the king like no other king, a man after God's own heart, was at home when other kings were at war. And he goes up to his terrace one night and sees a woman bathing. And he desires her. He inquires about who she is. And he's the most powerful man in the empire. And word comes back that this is Uriah the Hittite's wife. Now, that's a detail we would just gloss over. But that would have been enough that if David was thinking right, should have just stopped him dead in his deadly tracks. Because when word got back that this is Uriah's wife, Uriah was one of his best friends. This wasn't just some stranger in the empire, just some girl in the kingdom. This was one of his best friend's wife. David had this small, elite sort of delta force called David's Mighty Men. And these mighty men risked their neck for David time and time again. They were set apart from all the other soldiers. These were the best fighters, his most loyal friends. And Uriah was one of the mighty men. One of the guys who had risked their neck for David time and time again. And Uriah's out at war. And the text says he takes her that night. The most powerful man in the kingdom calls for her. She comes she gets pregnant that night, and as the story goes, he tries to cover it up and finally eventually murders her husband. And then, wouldn't you know, almost as this show of amazing gesture by the king, he takes in the warrior's widow as his own wife so that no one would be the wiser. He just happens to marry the slain warrior's wife. And the text ends, but what David did was known by the Lord. 
and the first child born from their union dies, and David's, and Matthew's reminding us, and the second child from that union is Solomon. And so Matthew goes out of his way to remind you, she too, Bathsheba, was one of Jesus' grandmothers. Now we could spend, listen, just as much time going through some of these granddads too, right? I could tell you about King Manasseh in verse 10. It says he was one of the most wicked kings of Israel. He had offered literally his sons and daughters as sacrifices to false gods, literally killed his children. He had literally, the Bible says, he had shed so much innocent blood that Jerusalem was flowing with blood from one end to the other under Manasseh's reign. Or Jeconiah in verse 11, a king so wicked that a curse was put on him and his family that nothing good was ever to come again from Jeconiah's family. Hear that again. Matthew wants to remind you that Jeconiah who was cursed and nothing good was ever to come from Jeconiah's line. He too is in. In Matthew 1, in this genealogy. We could keep going, but what can we learn from this list? And I want to say to you three things very quickly and then we'll be done. Here's what I want you to hear from the list. First, This list is reminding us Jesus is the one. Second, that Jesus came from the nations for the nations. And third, that Jesus came from sinners for sinners. I'll walk through those three things quickly. I want you to hear that again. Jesus is the one. Jesus came from the nations for the nations. And Jesus came from sinners for sinners. Here's the first one. Jesus is the one. Now, we'll talk through in a moment the the grandmoms, but if you were to step back and look at the whole list for a second, what Matthew wants all his readers to see is Jesus is the one. He's listed 40 names, but do you notice at the very top, he's got two names as sort of the heading of the whole thing. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 40 names, but he traces it all back to two names, and he says, listen, you know who Jesus is? He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why those two names? Because he's trying to show you, listen, everything God had promised is in him. He's the one, right? David was this man in 2 Samuel 7 who had been promised, listen, there's coming after you, in your line, a son who will sit on the throne and have an eternal kingdom. And you read of his sons, you know in one quick story, it's not going to be Solomon, it's not going to be Rehoboam or Jeroboam. You, you read the stories and you go, where is this one? And, and Matthew's trying to remind you, the promised son from David's line who would be the king and rule forever, he's here. Or even before that, Abraham had received this promise, Genesis 17, that from your offspring is going to come a, a way in which all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So there's a promise, Abraham, that there's coming an offspring through which all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And Matthew wants to remind you, everything, everything that God's people had been waiting for is fulfilled in him. This Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that you heard about from David and Abraham. From beginning to end, it's all been pointing to him. He's the fulfillment of all their stories. And Samar wrote, as we finish shadows, would you hear that from me one last time? These stories have been great, but they've all been pointing to Jesus. In fact, let me read you just this one section from a pastor named Tim Keller who says it succinctly, 
going through many of the same stories we did, but says it better than I could have. Would you hear this? Because this is what we've been laboring through shadows to communicate. This is what Keller says. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and his obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation, but for acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who is not just offered by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me, now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. The Bible's really not about you, it's about him. Jesus is the one. That's what the series has been saying. That's what Matthew 1 is saying. Here's the second thing. Jesus came from the nations for the nations. You know what's very odd? about the people that Matthew includes. It's not just that he even includes some women, but if you'll notice, most of them, if not all of these women, are not Jews. They're Gentiles. Matthew's writing to some Jews, some people who took great pride in the fact that they were God's people, set apart from a long time ago, and that the Messiah would come from them, and the Messiah would look like them. The Messiah would be a purebred Jew. We all want that. If you've been following Facebook or the recent stir about this Fox News reporter that said Jesus is white. Did you, did you read that? And everybody's weighing in because it's, it's an aghast thought to us. How dare you take a Middle Eastern man and, and just make him like you? But the thing is, we all want that. And, and the Jews that Matthew was writing to were the same way. They wanted a purebred Jew who is going to come from this perfect, pure line and be the Messiah. Except Matthew sort of jabs at them and says, I hate to remind you, but Tamar was probably a Canaanite. I hate to remind you, but Ruth is definitely a Moabite. I hate to remind you, but Rahab was a Canaanite. And in all likelihood, Bathsheba was a Hittite. I hate to remind you, but the very people who wouldn't even be allowed in the assembly were brought all the way in, into the point that they were in the family line, into the point that Jesus was part Moabite, part Canaanite, part Hittite, to the point that at least humanly speaking, Jesus was ready to shed his blood for the nations because the nation's blood was in him. It's an amazing thought that the Savior of the world had already come from the nations 
for the nations. And Matthew is reminding a people that were so sure in their ethnicity, this is not just the one for Israel, this is the hope for the whole world. He's teaching us that Christmas is for everyone. And here's the last one, third and finally. Jesus came from sinners for sinners. Here's what we've been getting around the whole morning, but let me say it as, cl as clearly as I can. Matthew includes in this list some of the most unsavory, unflattering people you could have imagined. And what's more amazing is because God chose them to be in the family, right? You didn't get to pick your family. You just came from the line you came from. But if there was ever someone who could orchestrate where a family was going to come from, God selected the people who was going to be in Jesus' line. And God chose some of the most extraordinary sinners in human history to be in Jesus' line. If you read these 40 names, listen, you come across a bunch of bad fathers, liars, cheaters, thieves, sexually immoral of every stripe, ranging from adultery to incest to polygamy to prostitutes to men who slept with prostitutes to men who offered their children as sacrifices to murderers and all the rest. And the people we would have left out, Jesus includes, not just on the list, but into his family. And here's why. Because Jesus is not ashamed of sinners. I want you to hear that again. Jesus is not ashamed of sinners. He came from sinners for sinners. Right? You and I, we know what it's like to be embarrassed about a certain family member. And yet that's all of us for Jesus. And Jesus is not ashamed of us. If you're standing here and you feel shame to be counted among God's people, Jesus is coming to you in this Christmas and saying, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed of sinners. Martin Luther once said it like this, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. Now, if the Lord does that here, so ought we to despise no one but put ourselves right in the middle of the fight for sinners and help them. This is why Hebrews has this verse that says, he is not ashamed to call us his brethren. He'd have reason to be ashamed of every one of us, and yet he's coming to you this Christmas and saying, I'm not ashamed of you. And I think we need to hear that. Not just your surface life. You know the, the deepest, darkest, worst moment you can think of? He's aware of it. And right there, in that, he's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to be identified with you. He came from sinners for sinners. And so Christmas is Jesus' way of saying, Tamar, I'm not ashamed of you. Tamar, the, the young girl who was sinned against and sinned, I'm not ashamed. You know the filth you feel, not even just of your own sins, but the sins committed against you. Tamar was there. She had not just done wrong. Wrong, horrible wrong had been done to her. She had been damaged goods. And Jesus is coming to Tamar and saying, I am not ashamed of you, Tamar. Christmas is Jesus' way of saying, Rahab, I'm not ashamed of you. I mean, you, you imagine how dirty someone must feel if their profession is to trade their body for money. And Jesus is coming and saying, I'm not ashamed of you. You're in, all the way in. 
all the way into the family in. Christmas is Jesus coming to Bathsheba and saying, I'm not ashamed of you. You can imagine the rumors that probably went around as Bathsheba walked around the palace. The whispers she likely heard. And, and maybe Matthew mentions these names in particular because he ends with another woman named Mary. Almost to say, Mary, you know, I know there's a bunch of rumors. This line has always had women with rumors. I know what they're saying about you, but ultimately I will be spoken the most evil against. I've come through sinners for sinners. I've come for the outcast so that I can become the outcast and they can be brought in. Isn't that marvelous? That at the cross, he becomes the one that is thrown out so that we can be brought in. This list is saying from the best of them, you talk Abraham, David, and all of them, none of them were so good that they didn't need Jesus. But from the worst of them, none of them were so bad that they couldn't get Jesus. And that's true for us. None of you are so good that you don't need Jesus, but none of you are so bad that you can't get him. He's come for all. If you're here and you go, I don't know if I'm the religious type, I don't know if I'm the Christian type, this list is here to say, you know what the type is? Human. Liars, cheats, swindlers, sinners of every stripe and kind are in the list because every type is the type that Jesus came for. And when you get that, suddenly it changes everything so that even this list of begats is dripping with grace. By grace, he begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, the husband of Mary, through whom came Jesus Christ, the Lord, born certainly for all the world. Let's pray. Our Lord, we give you thanks on this day as we prepare today in the coming days to celebrate the arrival of the one, the one to whom all the shadows had been pointing, the one to whom all of history was pointing. We thank you that this book called the scriptures is not advice for us on how to be better. This book is the news of the one who came for us. And you've come for sinners of every stripe and you are not ashamed of us. We thank you that we are not on the outside looking in. We've been grafted into the family so that by the Spirit, we now have become the offspring of God. We're in the line too, marvelously through Jesus. Help us to make much of him in the remainder of our service. And Holy Spirit, come make much of him in our hearts even now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.